Well, I've had a lot to think about this week. It's been quite the week, hasn't it? And I just thought that maybe the most encouraging thing I could do this morning would be to give you a message um, that would just start with this. Um, We're all going to die. Let's close in prayer. I'm I'm just messing with you. (laughs) But it's true. There's no way around it. We are going to die, right? And I know that's kind of a discouraging thought, but, you know, it's on the forefront of everybody's mind right now. And death is really horribly interrupting to those who enjoy their lives, isn't it? Others would just rather not think about it. I mean, think about Woody Allen, what he said. He said, you know, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) I agree with that. But death is inevitable. It's for all of us, right? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it's appointed once to die, but after this, the judgment. And why do we die? Well, primarily because of sin. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Everybody is a sinner. Therefore, everybody's going to die. The thing is, though, none of us know the time or the place. I mean, on virtually every gravestone, there's inscribed a date of birth, and there's also inscribed a date of death. Now, you can't really do anything about that first date, and you can't really do anything about the last date, can you? But in the middle of those two dates, on virtually every gravestone, is a dash. And that dash is hugely important. That dash is important because it represents everything about your life, every decision you'll ever make, good decisions and bad ones, every choice, every business deal, every dollar spent, every hug received, every kiss given, every place, every thought, everything is represented in that little dash. So the truth is, if your life is like mine, that dash shouldn't be just a straight little line. It should probably look a little bit more like like this right here. Yeah, that's more like my dash. I don't know about you, but we're all kind of a mess, aren't we? Now, for many of us, we may feel as though we're just floating through life and we're not sure where we're going. We're not sure what our purpose for living is. And our goal is nothing more than to make enough money to leave a little for our kids and stay healthy as long as possible and enjoy our work and families and then die young as late as possible. (laughs) Right? But don't be like that unknown author who wrote these words. He said, first I was dying to finish high school so then I could go to college. Then I was dying to college, go finish college so I could start my career. And then I was dying to get married. Then I was dying to have children. Then I was dying for the kids to get old enough to go to college so I could go back into my career. And then I was dying to retire. And now I'm dying. And suddenly I realized I forgot to live. I'd have to ask you today, are you really living, or are you just existing? There's a difference, you know. Dr. Henry Cloud, in his book, Integrity, gives a great image. He gives us this image of our lives being a boat, and we're sort of floating across this lake of our lives, and every boat, no matter how big or how small, leaves a wake, 
And Dr. Henry Cloud sort of places it like this. He says, you know, there's two sides to every wake. There's a, the side that says tasks, and then there's the side that represents relationships. And each one of these sides to the wake, really the culmination and the combination of those two things, our tasks and our relationships, really makes you who you are. It's, it's, it's what you've become, those two things, the combination of your tasks and relationships. But everybody leaves a wake. And so no matter how shy or how non-influential you feel like you are, trust me, I promise you, you are influential in the lives of at least someone. In fact, sociologists tell us that even for the most introverted people in the planet, the most introverted will actually have direct influence into the lives of at least 10,000 people over their lifetime. So don't think for a second that you don't have influence over somebody and in somebody's life. And every time I'm in a conversation with somebody or speaking or singing in front of people like this or people watching online, I realize something really important. It's not just you that I'm talking to. I'm talking to you times potentially 10,000 people. So you can make a difference. You do have a purpose. Your life does have a meaning. But what? What if, what if we could start all over with our dash? Wouldn't that be nice? Or better yet, what if we could start all over knowing everything that we know now, starting that way? Wouldn't that be awesome to start life knowing all that you've learned? Of the life? But that's not how it works, is it? No, 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 because we live life moving forward, but we, but, we, but we understand life looking backwards. I like the words of Max Lucado. He said, life is a required course. You might as well do your best to pass it, right? YOLO, you only live once. Now, the blessing is that God has given us his instruction manual, his Bible, and, it will, and if we follow it and we believe it, we can live a victorious life. Our dash can represent a life well lived. So I've entitled this message, Living the Dash. And with that as an introduction, I want you to look in your Bibles to John chapter 11, a little moment that happened 2,000 years ago that was hugely important in the lives of so many people. And it's a powerful story, one of my favorites in all of Scripture. It's the story of the raising of Lazarus. So if you're at home or here in this room, why don't you turn to John chapter 11, and let's start with verse 1. <clears throat> now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. By the way, you'll find that story about Mary in the following chapter, chapter 12. Verse 3, therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Does that strike you a little funny? He hears, he hears that one of his best friends is sick, and then he decides to stay where he's at for two more days. It's a little odd, isn't it? Seems like an unnatural response from Jesus. I mean, there's a crisis going on. Shouldn't we respond? Shouldn't we react immediately? His friend is dying, and yet the Lord waits two more days until he leaves. Now let's skip down to verse 17 and pick up our story there. So when Jesus came... He found out that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, the timing of four days is really interesting here because Jewish tradition in that day held that when a person died, that their, 
they would be buried the first day because of the climate and the heat, but their soul would actually linger for three more days. Now, they had a period of mourning for seven days, right? But those first three days, the Jewish tradition was that the soul would linger over the body and not completely leave. And so the weeping was most intense on the third day because they knew this was the last chance, right? Now, we don't believe that. We believe that to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. But this is first century Jewish belief. And so from the fourth day onward, the body would begin to decay, at which time the soul was believed to fully depart and never return. In other words, Jewish tradition held that by the fourth day, you weren't just dead, you were really dead, right? Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, verse 18, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And then if you go down to verse 32, you see that Mary comes out of the house, and her response to Jesus is almost virtually identical. Look at what she says. She says, Then Mary came where Jesus was and saw him and fell at his feet and saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That phrase, Lord, if you had been here, really jumps off the page to me. I don't know how you are, but I can say honestly that I've asked that question of the Lord many times in my life. Have you ever wondered if God is really here? Have you ever looked at the condition of this world or at your own situation and wondered, where is God? Does God know your situation? Have you laid in bed and cried out to God and wondered if your cries ever got past the ceiling of your own room? I know I have. Have you ever waited on God? Maybe you're in a time of waiting right now. Nobody likes to wait. Waiting's hard to do. I don't like to wait. That's why I avoid the DMV at all costs. We got really sweet people here at the DMV in Lynchburg, but I don't like to go there because I know without even going, I'm going to have to wait in line for a long time. I avoid Disney World, not because of the crowds, but, well, yeah, I guess because of the crowds, because I have to wait in line for two hours to just ride a 30-second ride. I remember I stood in line for two hours to ride the Peter Pan ride with my son, and when it finished, I was like, are you kidding me? That was it? Two hours for that? I just don't like to wait. And you probably don't either. But waiting is a fact of life. And we wait for so many different things, don't we? Even at the doctor, we sit in a waiting room, right? I wonder how much time in our dash is spent just waiting. So what do we do in the time of waiting? Well, there's active waiting and there's passive waiting. I would suggest that you wait actively on God. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you just a couple of pointers. First of all, in your times of waiting, first of all, keep your eyes on the big picture. Keep your eyes on the big picture. We have a tendency while we wait on God to take our eyes off of Him and onto our situation, right? I'll tell you what, free up your hands for a moment. I want you just to do this with me, all right? Take your hands like this and then just place your two hands right in front of your eyes. Now, your hands represent your current situation or your problems. Now, if you push your hands in front of your eyes, you'll notice that really you don't really see anything but your hands. The problem is right before you, right? Well, now just extend your arms a little bit to about a foot and a half out or as far as you can go. And suddenly, you can see a little bit more, can't you? Around them, below, over, under, everything but through it. 
The problem hasn't gone away. But you have a little bit better perspective, don't you? Let me give you this. The life of unbelief places our circumstances between ourselves and God. But the life of faith places God between ourselves and our circumstances. And as a child of the king, folks, we walk by faith, not by sight. So keep your eyes on the big picture. Secondly, keep your faith in his blessed promises. I've discovered that when I'm in a period of waiting and I don't know what to do, that the best thing for me to do is to keep doing what I do know I'm supposed to do until I know what to do. (laughs) You want me to run that by you one more time? I've discovered that when I'm in a period of waiting and I don't know what to do, that the best thing for me to do is to keep doing what I do know I'm supposed to do until I know what to do. In other words, waiting for God is not a passive thing. It's active. Keep living for the Lord. Keep loving the Lord. Keep holding on and keep moving forward in the areas that you know he has called you to do. And then one day, mostly when you don't expect it, God will reveal to you the next step in your journey. Not the next 20 steps, the next step. And the reason he doesn't reveal the next 20 steps to you, of course, is because if, he, if you knew everywhere you were going to go and every step you needed to take, it would not require any more faith at all. But we live by faith, not by sight. So keep doing what you know you're supposed to do. You might be waiting, but that doesn't, God, that doesn't mean God isn't moving, right? So keep your faith in his promises. And thirdly, keep your heart tuned into his presence. You've all heard the famous song by the seven dwarves in Snow White, you know, whistle while you work. I came up with a new one this week. How about this? Worship while you wait. It's in the waiting that we discover his amazing plan for our lives. Consider the waiting hall of fame, and you can see for yourselves how God's timing and his plan is impeccable. It's perfect. I mean... Look at Abraham, over a hundred years for the promise of a child, and then came Isaac. Moses, 40 years in the wilderness, twice, then came the promised land. Noah, 120 years it took him to build the ark, (laughs) and then came the flood. I feel so bad for Noah, I really do. Can you imagine like year 97, he's like, really? I mean, how long is this going to be? 120 years. And then came the flood. Joseph spent years in prison. Then came redemption. Even Jesus, 30 years in virtual obscurity. Then 40 days in the desert before he began his ministry. All of us go through times of waiting. And surely for Martha and Mary, they're well aware of the prophets of old who waited on God through most of those trying times. But in the midst of the moment, right now, all Mary and Martha see is this right here. They're waiting on Jesus, and it was extremely difficult. Always remember this. God works in the space of the entire dash, not just a sliver of it. So God's timetable is different than ours. God doesn't use a timepiece. God's wisdom is timeless. Look at verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I love that little statement of faith from Martha because even in her most trying of times, even in her despair and in her waiting on him to arrive, she has enough faith to say those words, even now. In the midst of your waiting, do you have that kind of faith? Do you know that God is working on your behalf even though right now you can't see it? 
He's always there, even in the waiting. And he makes us this promise. I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. One of my favorite verses in all the scriptures, Hebrews 13, 5. It's actually taken from the Old Testament. And I love that verse because it says this, I will never leave thee nor forsake you. But you know what? In commentaries, you discover that that's actually five negatives in that verse. So it could literally be translated like this. I will not not leave thee, neither will I not not forsake thee. Five negatives. God is simply and saying emphatically, I will never, 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 never leave you. He won't turn his back on you. Why? Because just like Mary and just like Martha and just like Lazarus, he loves you. God doesn't have mixed feelings towards you. He loves you above all. So even in your waiting, know that he loves you. Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. To Mary and Martha, Jesus was four days late. But God's perspective is eternal, not temporal. So what may seem like four days too late to us is right on time with God. So as you move through your dash, wait on the Lord, and you will discover his impeccable plan. Let me give you another one. Living the dash through the weeping. Through the weeping. I don't like to cry. I don't like to wait, but I really don't like to cry. But I cry all the time. I don't know what my deal is, man. I mean, I cry and cry. I cried in a Mercedes commercial the other day, Paul. <laughs> you know the one where they bring the little golden retriever home? I found myself wiping tears from my eyes. I can't watch TV shows. I can't watch movies without I cried in the Avengers Infinity Wars for crying out loud. Of course, that was a pretty sad moment when, uh, you know, Iron Man died. That was hard to take. My wife loves to cry, too. She likes sad movies. We went to, one time we went to the movies. We were young, married, and, and I wouldn't suggest this for especially young married people, but she wanted to see this tearjerker movie, and I didn't want to see it. So I went and saw a Western, <laughs> and I said, I'll meet you in the lobby when it's over. So she went and saw this tearjerker movie. She comes out in the lobby, and she's just boohooing. And I was like, what's wrong? What happened? She goes, oh, the movie's over. It was so wonderful. I was like, really? You're crying? She goes, I know. It was so sad, and I loved it. And I thought, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. But there are times now in our lives when weeping will come. There are seasons of pain. And those are tough days. But I want you to understand, first of all, that the Lord understands your pain. Listen to Psalm 34. The righteous call to the Lord and he listens. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who are discouraged. He saves those who've lost all hope. We are in a time of weeping in our nation right now. Did it ever occur to you, though, that nothing ever occurs to God? Nothing comes as a surprise to him. He's fully engaged. He knows what you're going through. He knows what our nation is going through. He knows what our world is going through. And he understands what we're going through. Look at verse 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? And then they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then that famous verse, verse 35, the verse that's the easiest verse in Scripture to memorize, but one packed with meaning, Jesus wept. 
Now, was Jesus weeping here because he felt sorry for them? Or was it because he was sad Lazarus had died? No, he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But that phrase in verse 33, groaned in spirit and was troubled, literally is the same word that refers to the snorting of an agitated animal. And it means that Jesus became angry in his spirit and extremely agitated. Why? I think for two reasons. First of all, because of their unbelief, their lack of faith. You only see Jesus getting upset about two things in all of Scripture. The, the, the Pharisees and their, and their heretical and legalistic uh, mindset and attitude. And secondly, the lack of faith among people, especially his followers. And, and, and so I believe he's upset at their lack of faith and their unbelief. And secondly, at the presence of, of pain and death itself. Death is the ultimate enemy of life. So it was the combination of seeing their pain, the presence of death, the misunderstanding of who he truly is, their lack of faith, and a sympathy to their situation that causes Jesus to get angry and sad and weep at the same time. Now let me ask you something. Do you think God feels your pain and understands your hurt? Yes, he does. Psalm 31, verse 7. The psalmist reminds us, I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities. That word known is the Hebrew word yada, and it means the ability to have a deep, sympathetic love, the ability to feel the emotions of another. And I think the best way I could illustrate this for you would be to mention to you a musical term. There's a musical term called symphonic resonance or sympathetic resonance, and I can explain it to you this way. If we had an acoustic piano sitting right here, and another acoustic piano sitting right here. If I was to go over to this piano and hit, like, say, middle C, do you realize that when I hit middle C on this piano, that the string, the same string, middle C, that string in this piano would resonate? It's a crazy phenomenon, but it's called symphonic resonance, and I just want you to know that's exactly what the Savior has for us. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So when you hurt, he hurts. When pain pulsates in your body, it pulsates in him. And when difficulties come, you don't have to go looking for him. He comes looking for you. The Lord understands your pain. But I also want you to know today, in your times of weeping, weeping that there's joy that comes in the morning. Hmm. Psalms 30, verse 5, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God knows what you're facing today. He also sees your tomorrow, and you can and will get through this. We will and can get through the coronavirus. We will. And whatever comes after that, until Jesus comes back to get us, this too shall pass. So like many of you, I've had to learn that lesson the hard way, and I won't go into great detail because of time, but in 1998, well, I lost all kinds of people in my life to death. I mean, 10 or 12 good, close friends, relatives, I mean, loved ones, and they were just dying for various and sundry reasons. And then the first week of May in 1998, I'm sitting in Carthage, Mississippi, and I get a phone call from my wife, and she tells me she's so frantic, and she tells me my, my grandfather has died, and he died by taking his own life. And then we go do the funeral, and the whole time I'm standing over the casket of my grandfather, and all I can ask is, why? Why'd you do this? And then we come home, and it's Friday morning. My wife's 17 weeks pregnant. We get up, go to a routine doctor's appointment, only to discover that we'd lost our baby. And those five days were hard for me. 
And I had to lead worship that weekend and go sing praises to God, a God that I was mad at, quite frankly. And I sat there in my living room all day that Saturday just asking God, why? Why'd you do this? And then I went and did that concert that Saturday night, and those people loved me, and they encouraged me. And on my way home that night, I realized that I was asking the wrong question to God the whole time. And I realized that instead of asking God, why did you do this, the better question I should ask him is, what can I learn from this? So my why became a what. You see, the truth is, I couldn't go around that moment in my life. I couldn't go over it. I couldn't jump over it. I couldn't, if I could have crawled under it, I would have. But truth is, I had to go through it. And that word through is a favorite in the Bible. Isaiah 43 verse 2 says this, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, nor will the, the flames scorch you. And though I walk, Psalm 20, we sang these words last week, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God doesn't use the word around or over or under. He says through. So maybe a good way to look at this trial you're facing is to simply flip the vowels in the word. And when you flip the vowels in the word trials, it becomes trails. Every trial is a trail that leads to something God wants to teach you. And every challenge equips us for future opportunities. So yes, your weeping may endure through a long and difficult season, but there is joy on the other side. Listen to the words of Oswald Chambers. A believer doesn't know the joy of the Lord in spite of tribulation, but because of it. Max Lake Cato says, what is coming will make sense of what is happening now. So let God finish his work. Let the composer complete his symphony. The forecast is simple. There's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. But God is in all days. He's the Lord of the famine and the Lord of the feast. And he uses both to accomplish his will. So as we move through our dash in the waiting, we see his plan. And in times of weeping, we find his incredible peace. Keep your eyes on him. Let me give you another one. Living the dash through the watching. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he's been dead four days. This is one of my favorite verses in all of the King James Version because the King James Version says this, and Martha said, but Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> it's my fave. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, we have to pause here because this is really important. The book of John has three major themes in it, all right? Belief, the glory of God, and that Jesus is the author of life. And all three of those major themes are so prevalent in this story. And this verse right here, did, did I not say to you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? This verse right here carries with it two of the major themes, right? So the first one is belief. Now, eight times in this story alone, eight times the word believe is mentioned. You think God wants us to believe in him? You think Jesus wants us to believe who he says he is? Absolutely. In fact, belief requires three things, faith, trust, 
and action. Say those words with me. Ready? Faith, trust, and action. And the best way I can is illustrate this is to use this chair right here. Now see, this, this is a chair. And the reason I say it's a chair is because it has that chair look, doesn't it? Sure looks like a chair. Would you agree this is a chair? Has that chair feel? Even has that familiar chair smell, whatever that is. I'm pretty sure it's a chair. And I can say I believe in this chair. And I believe in this chair because I believe it is what it says it is. And I can trust in this chair because I believe it can do what it says it'll do. But I don't really believe in this chair until I sit down. Oh, yeah. This is definitely a chair. Now, your salvation works the same way. You see, you can believe in Jesus, but until you put your faith in him and that he really is who he says he is, and until you put all your trust in him that he will do exactly what he says he will do. But there's one other thing. It requires an action. And he says these words, follow me. You see, we can believe in Jesus, but in words, but we have to also believe in Jesus indeed, right? A lot of us are real easy with the whole faith and trust thing, but it's that last part, follow me, that gets so many of us, which is why Jesus lost so many of the people that were following, because he would eventually say, okay, you want to follow me? Take up your cross daily and really follow me. And that's when a lot of them turned away. Do you believe in Jesus? Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Well, to those who do, there's another element of John right here. He says, take away the stone. We must do our part and then leave the rest up to God, right? And that's the point that Jesus is trying to get across to Martha and the others. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. I love what Dr. Jeremiah said. He said, for the non-believer, seeing is believing. But for the Christian, believing is seeing, Right? Hebrews 11, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we must believe, but also there's this other part, the glory of God. And this is really important. Now, what's the glory of God? Well, John Piper says the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It's the going public of his holiness. And I would phrase it this way. God's glory is the fleshing out of his presence, his power, and his perfection. All of creation is filled with the glory of God. So when you see the majesty of the mountain range, you're looking at God's glory. When you witness the power of, the, of a breaching whale or a soaring eagle, it's the picture of God's glory. And when you see a life changed, you have a front row seat to the glory of God. And did you ever think that God perhaps wants to use you in the process? Take away the stone, he says to them. You can be an instrument of God's glory. And you know, we're going through a time in our nation right now where people are suffering, people are confused, people are discouraged. What better time than for the church to rise up and be the church? To be agents of the glory of God with your neighbors, with people you come in touch with, with your family members who are afraid or whatever it might be. Our engaged obedience and sensitivity to all that is going on around us often plays a key role in the supernatural handiwork of God. Let me give you an example. My wife, she's got a real sensitive heart anyway, but she was uh, a couple years back in a grocery store here in Lynchburg, a grocery store she'd never actually been into, but we were waiting for the boys to get out of basketball practice, and she had to get one thing for dinner. So she walks in the grocery store, grabs the one item, makes her way to the cash register, and encounters a lady in front of her who's just fumbling through her purse and is obviously 
trying to um, pause and, and trying to stall uh, paying for her items. And all she had was a few little items like milk and bread and some medicine. And my wife gets up there and she sees this lady sort of fumbling through her purse and the Holy Spirit says to my wife, you need to buy that stuff. Now my wife's never done that before in her life. But she said, um, ma'am, I feel like God just told me I'm supposed to buy this. And this lady looks up and she begins to weep. And she says, are you serious? And my wife said, yeah, I, I don't know why, but I feel like I'm supposed to do this. And, and the lady then tells her, well, this is amazing. She said, I, I've been walking around this store for an hour praying and asking God how I'm supposed to pay for this stuff because I, I, I lost my job and I don't have any money and I, I don't know how I'm supposed to, to do this, but I have to have this medicine. My doctor said I'm supposed to take this medicine and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And, and God just told me to trust him. So I finally made my way to the cash register, and I still didn't know how I was going to pay. And she goes, and here you are. It's an amazing moment. And what's so amazing is, is that God in that moment used Shay as an instrument of his glory. And at the same time, that lady was an instrument of the glory of God in the same way, same moment, two different situations. They were both praying, they were both obedient, and God used that moment to show them both his glory. Can I just give you this word? Learn to listen with your eyes wide open. God wants to use you to take away the stone. And that's exactly what Jesus told him. Look, you do your part and then watch me do mine. Every life that is changed by the grace of God is a testimony to the glory of God. So through the waiting, you can discover his impeccable plan. Through your weeping, you can find his incredible peace. And through our watching, we see his immeasurable power. Let me give you the last one. Living the dash through the wonder. Then they took away the stone from the place where the man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I know that you always hear me. And because of the people who were standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out. <laughs> Can you imagine that scenario? I mean, that's wild. And poor Lazarus, man, he may have been just hanging out in glory, and all of a sudden he heard his name, and he was like, what? I got to go back, you know, but here he is, another dash, another opportunity to do what he was created to do, live a life of worship. Hmm. So what's our job as believers? Well, to glorify God in all of our tasks and in all of our relationships. Our wake should be one big, loud shout out to the glory of God. Because we were created for this purpose. All things were created through him and for him. So as we move through our dash, if you live for him, you discover the wonder of worshiping him in his intimate presence. Oh, but we got to be careful. Because God does not compete for his glory. And for many of us, our worship is hindered by something. Look at the end of verse 44. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. 
and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. See, Lazarus is alive, but he's still bound by grave clothes. And I wonder how many of us have been made alive in Christ, and yet we're still bound. We're alive, but covered in burial wrappings, and we stinketh. We know whose burial wrappings these are. These are trappings of sin and and guilt and shame and pain. They're all the things in our lives that don't bring glory to God. So you may have been made alive in Christ, and yet some of us never took the grave clothes off. Why? Well, because some of us are still holding on to that sin that keeps us from being all that we can be for the glory of God. Now, only you know the answer, but my guess is if you're wearing burial clothes, you know it. You see, the typical burial in the first century required 75 to 100 pounds of perfumed resin wrapped around the entire body. That's a lot of weight. And when you carry around the pain and the shame of your sin, it's as though you're carrying around a weight of 100 pounds on your back. And that's exactly the way the enemy would have you live. The enemy wants you to live wrapped up in burial clothes. Because (laughs) when you are, you're not very dangerous. You can't move. Can I just encourage you to do one thing today? And if you haven't heard a single thing, don't miss this. Loose it and let it go. Let God take the sin of your life and throw it as far as the east is from the west. Let God cleanse you and forgive you and make you a new creation. Let him get rid of the burial clothes. For those of you who don't know him, let God forgive you and let him save you. For those of you who do know him, but you're still walking around with grave clothes on, Jonathan talked about it last week. It's the hardest thing to do, to live with one foot in the world and one foot trying to glorify Jesus at the same time. It's the most miserable person on the planet. And it's because you're trying to walk around with grave clothes on. Listen, the lifestyle of worship is a perpetual celebration over the freedom and forgiveness God has given you. And you can only do that when your grave clothes are off. So what does your dash look like? Where do you plan to spend eternity? In heaven with Jesus or in eternity in hell and darkness? The choice is up to you. And I would say this, it's the choice of your lifetime. It's the most important decision of your dash. It's the most important decision you'll make your entire life. The truth is, our lifetime is on earth is like a mere blip on the radar of eternity, isn't it? In light of eternity, our dash, well, it looks, it's like a long line. It just keeps going, right? But our dash is really not that big, is it, in light of eternity? It's quite a bit smaller. And it just keeps going and going. And really, when you really consider eternity, <laughs> it's even smaller than that. It's just a little sliver in light of all that's happening. So whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Lazarus got to start all over. He got two dashes. In fact, if you looked at his gravestone, it probably has a birth date and a death date. And then maybe it said resurrected by Jesus. And then four days later, he started a new dash. And then 30 30 years after that, died again. But on a spiritual level, isn't that the same for all of us who know Christ? We were hopelessly dead in our sin, and then Jesus called out our name. You see, spiritually, you and I all get to start all over, don't we? And aren't you thankful that in Christ we are a new creation? 
I'm going to ask the band, if they would, to come up because we're going to celebrate today. We're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus called us by name. And if you're watching today, I want to give you the last and most important verse of this chapter. It's right in the middle. You find it where Jesus is talking to Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's not just one or the other. He is both. And he's the author of creation and the authority over resurrection. He's the writer and the completer of our dash. And is he calling your name today? If he is, turn to him. Trust him. If you're watching online, you can look right there. There's a little button to push. Or better yet, just send us an email. If you'd like to invite Christ into your life, I just want to ask you, even now as you sit there, just close your eyes and simply say this, Lord, save me. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I want to know you. I want to follow you. And if you want to know Jesus closer and ask him in your life, then just say that prayer right there. Just ask him in. But believe in your heart with faith, with trust. And now this is the action right here. You're asking the Lord into your life. Just ask him in. Let him save you. And then for those of you here this morning, or those of you watching online, if you got grave clothes of sin on, man, ask the Lord just to get rid of them, just to take them off. Just get, let him shed those off of your life so that you can live freely and worship him freely. Now you can send us an email at pastor at trbc.org. Send Pastor Jonathan an email, and it's simply pastor at trbc.org. We want to know about your decisions. We don't know about anything that you'd like to have uh, your help from, from this church. We're here to help you. We're here to help guide you spiritually. We want to be a part of your life. We want you to be a part of us. So whatever it is, please email us, pastor at trbc.org. We're watching for your email. We want to help you. We want to be involved. And for those of you watching online, all the notes of this message, they're on there. So you can go back, make notes yourself, and do whatever you need to do there. But we want to thank you for joining us. Just as a recall, just as a little recap, you can know his plan in your waiting. You can know his peace in your weeping. You can know his power in your watching. And you can know his presence in your worship. Aren't you thankful for this story? But more than that, aren't you thankful that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And aren't you thankful that he called you by name and gave you salvation so that we can celebrate with happiness and joy because of who he is?